Hello, and welcome to Square in the Circle. In this episode, I'm joined by Alex Flez Green, who is a senior policy advisor in the Heritage Foundation's Allison Center for National Security. His analysis focuses on defense, deterrence, and alliance management in the Indo-Pacific, Europe, and the Middle East. Previous to his current position, he served as National Security Advisor to U.S. Senator Josh Hawley. In addition, he has held positions at the Systems Planning Analysis Incorporated and the Center for a New American Security. Alex has published numerously in the Washington Post, War on the Rocks, The National Interest, among other well-known publications. He is a graduate of Harvard University. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program are of my own and my guests. They do not reflect the positions of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or any other organization. This contest for education and information purposes only. All right. Hey, Alex. Hey, thanks for being on the podcast. I, I really, really appreciate your time. Um, you know, I'm really looking forward to our discussion and I'm really looking forward to learning from you regarding quite a few areas. Uh, specifically, we're going to talk about China, but we're also going to talk about, you know, defense industrial base. We'll talk about budget. We'll talk about force posture, which is my area as a, as a global force manager. Um, and, and these are things that you've comment, commented on heavily, um, you know, in, in both writing and, uh, you know, through other podcasts. So thanks again. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, I'll turn it over to you for any opening comments. Hey, well, well simply to say thank you so much for having me. I, I'm a big fan of your podcast, and it's a real privilege to be on here with you uh, to talk about some, some topics that are important and, and I think uh, very timely. So, so thank you, and uh, it's good to be with you. Okay, great. All right, Alex, you know, I'll start it off with the defense industrial base. I, you know, I want to get your perspective on how you see what's your, like your overall assessment of defense industrial base. And if it's not healthy, how do we get it to, to be healthy for a great power competition? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I'm not the first person to point out that the U.S. defense industrial base faces some serious problems. Right. And, and you can talk through why it is a, a, a along a number of different vectors. But the bottom line is we're not producing enough of the things that we need in order to reliably deter China in particular, no less um, actually prosecute a campaign. And, and if it goes protracted, especially win it. Right. You know, and, and we can talk about some of the munitions and the other specific things. But that's really the order of the day. The question is, well, how do you fix that as quickly as possible? You know, um, there are some limits. There are some hard limits in what you can do physics will get you eventually, right? You can only move as fast as the, the infrastructure you have available. Um, it takes time to build infrastructure. Um, but uh, but even so, you know, there's more we can and must be doing, right? I think the order of the day, thinking about that, is to be very clear, what is our priority? If it is our priority to deter China or to be able to defeat China, um, if deterrence fails, then that is where the capital has to flow. That is where the orders have to, to go to be prioritized. And if that comes at the expense of other production, um, then, then that may just have to be a choice that we're willing to make if, in fact, deterring China is the priority that we say it is. So what kind of um, munitions capabilities should we be investing in specifically for China? Obviously, we're investing heavily in, in Abrams tanks and, and, and Bradleys, but we're not going to use armor in a Pacific fight, not as heavily as you would see in a European land campaign. campaign. So just wondering, what are your thoughts on what, what should we be investing in? Hundred percent. You know, I think the, the the easiest way to kind of walk through it is is you think what do U.S. forces require to do their part? Um, a lot of that's going to be standoff aerospace stuff, mm -hmm. right? But there's also a ground component in terms of fires. You know, walking through that list, uh, different kinds of anti ship missiles, certain kinds of anti air capabilities, uh, air to air, ground to air. Um, you know, the, the munitions problem itself is, is an enormous Achilles heel that we're facing. We've got to deal with with urgency. Um, and that's and there are other examples, but that's you know just examples on the U.S. side. 
right? The Taiwanese component is just as important for this, right? If the Taiwanese are able to, to delay and degrade uh, Chinese invasion force with any degree of effectiveness, it's going to have a tremendous impact on our collective ability to not only deter it in the first place, but to beat it, uh, Chinese invasion, uh, if the worst comes to pass. And for them, you know, I've written a little about this. Others have talked very eloquently about, you know, the quote unquote asymmetric defense capabilities that they really need to be investing in and acquiring as quickly as possible, you know, um, anti, uh, again, coastal defenses, uh, mobile air and missile defenses, and some anti-armor capabilities, weapons for ground forces, because you have to assume that Chinese forces will make landfall at this point. We can't say confidently they won't, right? So these are the kinds of things that we got to be investing in. And, and to your point, um, you know, I will say many of these things do overlap with the European theater, right? I mean, many things, especially for the Taiwanese, are things that we have been sending to Ukraine, acquiring for Ukraine, and that that's something we've got to work through at a policy level. But but to, to exactly what you were saying before, a lot of them don't, right? Uh, a, a lot of them are not, you know, are, are distinct from the things required for those other theaters. And so as you're thinking about decisions in terms of investments, in terms of capital, political capital, um, you know, we have to, you know, basically be con continuously adjudicating at the department, the White House and Congress to say, okay, where where are we going to put the marginal dollar? What are we prepared to do less of in order to free up critical resources for those priority investments? So since the 1991 Gulf War, China really, you know, awakened, right, to, you know, U.S. hegemony and, you know, you know, long story short, you know, have have transformed, have modernized, you know, over over time, last couple of decades. So they've been making leaps. Are we behind or are they still behind in terms of military investments? I I, I take the Chinese very seriously. I, I do not underestimate them. You know, they're not 10 feet tall, mm -hmm. certainly. Um, you know, and I think it's important to be sober about what they're good at, what they're not good at, where they have to improve, you know, where they're lagging, right? Um, but I think an objective assessment where they've come from and where they are now, where they seem to be going, tells you that, um, you know, they're walking the walk. CCP has been saying for, for a very long time that unifying Taiwan with the mainland um, as part of a broader project of achieving hegemony in the region and then beyond uh, is a priority. And they have been investing accordingly. So I would say we're absolutely behind the curve. Um, I think the fact that the fact that we're behind the curve is evident, you know, in, in the conversations we're having today, you know, in terms of, you know, can, it is it is now an open question whether we will be able to reliably deter China for the remainder of this decade. It is even an open question, increasingly, whether we would be able to win in a fight over Taiwan if it came to that. I mean, these are questions we shouldn't even have to ask ourselves. These are questions that, you know, policy decisions have been made for a long time now, put ourselves in a position where we really are coming from behind. And if we're going to do that, uh, not just to win a war if it happens, but ideally to an avoid a war altogether, again, we've got to got to invest and we've got to be absolutely deliberate and, and really focused on this yeah so some some would say there's some some factions out there that would say that you know china is just a just a boogeyman right they are not as not a big threat as you know you know we make them out to be and because we make them out to be as a as a big boogeyman a big threat this is why well part of the reason why we have a a large defense budget you know we're going on you know 900 billion right you know, going on, a, going on a trillion, right, is the is, is the glide path, or just keep on keep on increasing. So with the, you know, approaching approaching that much that much money, is our budget too much? Or is it too little for what we need for, you know, a fight against China, or at least to deter China? Sure, no, this and this is very much uh, 
this is a live debate in Washington, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's a live debate on both sides of the aisle, even within the Republican Party, you know, speaking, you know, as someone who served on the Hill for a Republican member, Mm -hmm. and is very much in touch with folks across the the, the party. Uh, This is something that that, that a lot of folks are talking about, and there is disagreement over. I think, um, you know, from my perspective, I think it is probably true that we will have to increase defense spending just to keep pace with the China threat. I think it is also true that increasing defense spending um, is going to be hard. It's not clear how much is, is realistically possible, whether for political reasons or just as a virtue, uh, you know, as virtue of the fact that we face significant fiscal constraints today, right? Um, and there's also the fact that if even if you increase spending, there's a lag time between when you get that extra buying power and when you're ultimately able to produce and field the capabilities that that it, it sort of unlocks, right? So for all of these reasons. Um, even if you think we, we need to increase defense spending, deal with China and other threats, I think you've got to be realistic about how much is likely to happen, how, how much of an increase that is, how quickly it is likely to happen, and then ultimately how long it will take for those spending increases to, to convert to combat power. And so I think if you do that math and you look at those problems, you come to a place where you say, okay, um, it's going to take some time, if it happens at all, for those meaningful defense spending increases to occur and, and, and yield dividends. Um, but we still have to deter China in the interim, as well as dealing with other problems. And you come back to a point to say, well, um, that's really hard, right? Mm-hmm. It's really, really hard. And we're, we're seeing evidence of that when you, you it, we do not have the ability to prosecute all of these, you know, issue sets and deal with all these threats with equal vigor. It's just, it's self-evidently not the case, right? So you come to a point to say, um, if you are going to deter China with the resources available and that are likely to be available, even with some defense spending increases in the next few years, you're going to, again, you're going to have to prioritize. And I know that that, that that's really the theme, right? And that's, that's hard. Washington, folks in Washington have not shown, just as an empirical matter, have not shown an ability to prioritize consistently now for some time. I mean, this, this administration is case in point, right? I, I recall, um, you know, once upon a time, they were going to release a national defense strategy that was focused on China. And then it had it got stalled in large part because of uh, the war in Ukraine, right? And when it came out, it did say China is a pacing threat, right? It had that language. But now Russia is also an acute threat, right? Which immediately muddies any sense of prioritization. And then, you know, you look at what's happened over the last couple of years. And, and again, that prioritization that was promised is still spoken to publicly, privately. It's, it's just not there. Um, so that that is very much the theme, but it's the theme for a reason because resources are scarce. They're not likely to increase dramatically anytime soon, um, and so we've got to work with what we've got. Yeah, because you only have so much force pool, you only have so much inventory, so much capabilities, you only have so much slits, right? And it it can be confusing. Uh, the strategy, you know, what what is the true true threat? What is our true priority? Is it really China? Okay, we also got conflict in Ukraine, and we're supporting our partners and our allies in, in Europe. Okay, also you got Israel, right? And you also got Iranian proxies in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden doing doing their thing to disrupt uh, commercial shipping, right? So we're like all all over the map. Should we just completely? Well, you also got homeland defense too, right? You know, that's that's another that's another priority. So, you know, what exactly is the priority and should we just focus completely on China and let Europe handle, you know, Russia, let our partners, let Israel handle the Middle East? Um, you know, I just wonder what, what are your thoughts? Because we only have so much force pool, so much inventory, so much, you know, capabilities and, 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 and money budget. So, 
hundred percent. Yeah, I would say, I mean, you're, you're asking the right questions, right? What, what your question, implicit to your question, the predicate for your question is a recognition exactly as you said, that these things are scarce, mm-hmm. that they are scarce, they will likely remain scarce. And this is the reality we have to deal with. I mean, that in of itself is, is far beyond a lot of the conversations you have in Washington, because for a lot of folks, they have, they have yet to connect those dots, right? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of folks in Washington who still don't recognize those, that fundamental premise of scarcity. And that's, that's a challenge, right? But if you do recognize, as you have, the fundamental premise of scarcity, well, now, now you're within the realm. Now you're having an actual conversation. Okay, what's realistically possible? What are the options available to us? And of those options, which are best aligned to our nation's interests? My view is, you know, when you think about the purpose of American government and the U.S. military in particular, for me, it, it, it boils down in large measure um, to protecting Americans' uh, security, freedom, and prosperity, right? And if that's sort of the cardinal goal, then you work back to say, okay, what are the most important things we need to be able to do in order to fulfill that mission? To me, you know, I think you know, defending the homeland is clearly at the top of that, right? If you mm-hmm. don't get that right, in a fundamental sense, um, nothing else matters, right? But but that that's that's necessary, but also insufficient, right? And we've seen over the course of history, American history, and, and, and even previously, you know, that that what happens abroad does matter, right? And in particular, it is very important for the United States not to let a foreign rival control uh, key portions of, of Europe or Asia or all of the landmass, for that matter, as, as some have tried to do over the, over the decades and centuries. Um, because at that point, frankly, that did not only necessarily um, potentially to place, displace us as well as the most powerful nation, they, they could in fact be powerful enough um, to jeopardize our access to critical markets or critical maritime routes. And ultimately, even potentially, um, you know, uh, exert power in our hemisphere to our severe detriment. So, so that is something we have to be worried about. Something we have to guard against. If you, in that context, right, um, there's only really one country that stands out as, as having any real shot at agglomerating that kind of power, and that's China today, right? China is uh, in the world's most important region. Um, outside of North America from an American perspective, right, in terms of the wealth available and likely to become available, the power resident in that region. Um, And they are powerful and becoming more so and have a real shot at regional hegemony if we don't stop them. And if they get regional hegemony, now we're talking about a nation that could realistically displace us, the world's most powerful nation, and go down the route that I just described before. That is something worth avoiding. So from a priorities perspective, defending the homeland is vital but it is also vital to deny China's imperial ambitions, right? And so that then becomes the other sort of top priority for America's forces. Now, again, thinking about scarcity, um, that's hard, right? Because yeah. if you're going to achieve those missions, especially with China, uh, that's going to take substantial investments, take yeah. substantial reallocation of future investments, substantial reallocation of forces and other inventories already available, right? And that means that that's less for other theaters. Now, in my view, I don't think we should. I also, I also don't think we have to abandon those other theaters. I, I, I think to, I, that that is not, to me, a necessary thing to do in order to achieve the primary goals of defending the homeland and turning China. But what is necessary is to work more closely and differently with our allies and partners in those theaters in order to deter and defend against shared threats to our shared interests. Right. So if you think mm-hmm. about Europe, what that means is the United States does and will continue to have a role in NATO but that our European allies have to take primary responsibility for Europe's conventional defense, right? Relying yeah. on the United States for a nuclear deterrent, certain select conventional assets we can provide without trading against the homeland defense or China missions, right? Um, and so again, in that capacity, we do still have a critical, important, lasting role. 
but our European allies have to step up and lead, right? In some ways, you know, think about the Middle East, they have to do what, what Israel's done now for a long time, right? Which is to be deadly serious about their own defense, right? And that's one of the reasons why Israel is such an important partner, uh, ally, even in the Middle East, right? Um, so this is, I, I, in broad terms, kind of how I think about prioritization and what that looks like cascading downwards across theaters. Yeah, so you, you touched up on one point that I want to get just a little bit more from you, Alex, on. Um, you, you touched up on this about, you know, why, why should we care about China? Why should we care about defending, helping tai, Taiwan? Um, you're, you're going down that. I just want, you know, just a little bit more on, you know, just, just uh, you know, Matt Bigelow, average, average Joe, right? You know, why should I care about, about that conflict and protecting, you know, Taiwan and defending Taiwan and helping them out if, if you know, God forbid we go from crisis to, to conflict? Because, you know, there, there are, you know, folks out there that, you know, are saying, you know, who, you know, who cares about Ukraine, right? Um, you know, who cares about Israel? Who cares about the Middle East? And, you know, for all sorts of different various reasons, and, and I get their arguments. But what about, you know, China and, and Taiwan? Why? Why Is it economics? Is it security? Is it a mixture of both? You know, what is it? I, this is in many ways the question of the day, right? I mean, I think folks are completely, completely right to be skeptical of using force abroad. I mean, we've just spent two decades, you know, mm-hmm. sort of slipping between conflicts that are often at best, tangentially related to our, our, our interests. And, and it's not even like we've sort of clearly won these conflicts, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think folks, it's it's entirely valid for folks to have questions, to ask those questions. And I think it's incumbent upon those who think we should be using force abroad um, to be able to explain it. Now, you know, in that context, Taiwan, in my view, and I think, you know, there, there's certainly other reasons, but, but as I would offer, Taiwan matters because China matters, right? You know, thinking about what I just said before, um, Chinese leaders have been explicit. They want to dominate the Indo-Pacific, and then they want to expand their power globally and ultimately become the world's most powerful nation. Uh, similar as the United States became the world's most powerful nation over the last uh, half century or more, right? You know, think about the world that that looks like—a world where um, China, you know, controls huge portions of the global economy, is able to exclude U.S. companies from certain areas, from certain kinds of business, to, to blackmail U.S. consumers and companies to to make us poor, to make us weaker, because that's in their, to the degree that that they view that as being in their interest, right? To, um, you know, we already have a problem with, with Chinese influence in American politics, right? Whether, you know, through explicitly through lobbying or through other measures, especially through companies who rely on access to Chinese markets. I mean, now, now multiply that, right? Because it's not just Chinese markets, it's the Asian markets under the control of Beijing and even other markets, right? Um, you know, I, I remember, once upon a time, you know, it was it almost it was hypothetical to talk about China having a military presence in the Western Hemisphere like we do now in, in the Western Pacific. That's no longer tr- you know truly hypothetical, right? Imagine a world where China dominates the Indo-Pacific, ha- has has pushed us out of that region, secured its flanks, and it continues to build a global military. What's it going to do with that military? It's already building it, but well, it's going to deploy it, right? And as China grows more powerful and it's able to increase influence in places like South America, Central America, it is entirely plausible to me that if that happens, our grandchildren could live in a world where the PLA operates freely off of our shores, right? Or in the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, that that's a terrible world. I don't want to live in that world. I don't think you know, our grandchildren should live in that world. Um, so that's a world worth avoiding. The way to do that is to make sure China is not able to achieve its imperial ambitions in Asia in the first place. This is something, incidentally, that it's a uniquely American thing, right? I mean, we have fought wars 
We balanced power against the Soviet Union, again, for very similar reasons, not to impose our will on another country, not to remake a country as we've tried to again and again over the last few decades, but simply because we knew that we could not afford to let a foreign rival grow so powerful that it could cripple our nation's economy and surround us in our hemisphere. That's what this is about. Now, how Taiwan fits into that, you know, when we think about what it takes to deny China's imperial ambitions, there's a lot to that, but, but a lot of this ultimately is military, right? If Beijing believes and is actually can use military force to dominate that region, whether by conquering others or simply intimidating them into, into submission, then that's exactly what we should expect it to do, not least because that's what it's been doing now for years as it's grown more powerful. Uh, Taiwan is sort of is, is, is the case study for that. That's where this is most urgent. If China gets control of Taiwan, it will be positioned to use force much more effectively against countries close to Taiwan, Japan, the Koreans, the Philippines, others, right? Not to mention projecting power against U.S. territories in the Western Pacific, think places like Guam, the Marianas. You know, these are these are islands that our grandfathers, our grandparents often fought, fought over in uh, World War II. Uh, you know, if we don't get Taiwan right, they're in play again in a way they haven't been now uh, for almost a century. Right. But it's not just the military positioning. Right. If China takes Taiwan and it's able, for example, to get Taiwan's semiconductor industry intact as a result of that conquest, China has already used all kinds of economic coercion against us. I mean, think when they threatened our access to, to PPE during the covid pandemic. Now imagine they have control of the world's access to the single most arguably the single most important component in all aspects of our digital infrastructure. That's terrifying. Right. And if you're trying to prevent China from counting others in the region or other parts of the world, I mean, that's that's like an ace card potentially up there, up their sleeve. We, sh we, we should not, we cannot let them get that. And then there's the broader sort of diplomatic piece to this too, where, where, where Taiwan matters, you know, for better or worse, true or not, many countries in Asia believe the United States has committed to come to Taiwan's defense. So long as that is true, if the United States uh, shows itself to be unwilling to, or worse, unable to effectively defend Taiwan, now it's only going to get harder to convince those other countries that will have their back if they want to resist China's imperial ambition, right? And if they don't have that confidence, then the incentives shift for them. It becomes much harder for them to say to themselves, well, actually, it's going to be to our benefit to continue to say no to Beijing. Instead, you know, the, the incentives will, will be more towards what we call bandwagoning, right? Which is to say to go along to get along, right? If you don't think that, that the United States will have your back, well, then maybe you shouldn't pick a fight with Beijing because they just rolled Taiwan, potentially defeated the United States in the process, and they're coming for you next, right? That's, that's, a, that's a conversation we have every interest in avoiding. Uh, the most effective, the, 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 in relative terms, the cheapest way to do that in American lives and treasure is very simple. Do everything possible to strengthen deterrence as quickly as possible now so Beijing never has the confidence that it needs to go after Taiwan in the first place, and we can live in a world where Chinese people can live with dignity, we can live with dignity, and we can continue to enjoy peace on terms that are favorable to us. Yeah, so let's, you know, talk like force readiness a little, a little bit. So all the, you know, the services, you know, all the services are, are, are modernizing, transforming, they're doing things with their structure, they're investing in different capabilities. Um, some of those capabilities won't even really come, you know, come into play right until, you know, well after 2030. So if we go from crisis to conflict in in, in Taiwan, um, you know the previous chairman said that the a, f a fight in Taiwan, the Pacific, will be a a, sp a space, a air, a navy, mostly um, you know fight with you know the army as is a supporting type effort. But you know if we went to conflict, you know say today or you know tomorrow, are 
are we able or are we unable? Like what's your assessment of the, of the readiness of the force to do that? You know, it's um, five years ago, it would have been an easy question to answer, right? So, well, well, clearly we are, right? It might hurt, might be painful and bloody, but we'll get it done, right? We, the Chinese will not take control of Taiwan. Now it's harder. Five years since, um, the trends have not been favorable in key aspects, some of which we've already talked about. Um, and uh, it's, it's no longer as clear that the United States would be able to defeat a Chinese invasion. I think the fact that that is a question at all is a terribly dangerous thing. Because if it's a question for us, it's a question for Beijing. And that means that from Beijing's perspective, there is a chance this thing could go well, right? No doubt they're priced in that it will be difficult. If the United States gets involved, it'll be hard. It'll be costly, right? But we've seen them behave as though they're fully anticipating those challenges and planning accordingly, right? You know, they're investing in the ability to overcome an American intervention on, on Taiwan's behalf and still achieve that fait accompli, or if need be, prevail in a protracted conflict. So, um, mm. so yeah, I mean, that's why the order of day, it, that's why, that's why it, you know, it is as urgent as it is now to invest in, in deterrence. And just, you know, thinking about some of the programs you mentioned, you're totally right. You know, to their credit, there are some um, leaders in the department, in the military, U.S. military, that are, that are getting after this you know, w with all vigor, right? Um, you know, and, uh, and and full credit to them. Um, but, uh, but, but new kit here in 2032 is not going to help us in 2025, 26 or 27, right? Um, and so by all means, invest in that, right? Invest, make sure we can deter, we're doing everything possible to deter China in the out years, but don't do it at the expense of our ability to get there now, right? Um, that, that's, I think in large measure, one of the, the biggest challenges facing us from a force development perspective today. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I interviewed uh, Major General Retired Ferrari uh, a couple of months ago, and he sounded the alarm, you know, very similar to, you know, to what you said about, you know, it's okay, you know, that we're, you know, we're investing in, you know, capabilities and, and, and structure, you know, that, that that's not really going to take effect until years down the road. But we should be heavily invested in the stuff that we need now, because, you know, crisis conflict has a vote in, you know, I think it was SecDef Gates that said, you know, uh, you know, we have a perfect record of, you know, predicting war and it's been, you know, every conflict and, and it's been zero because we, you know, we've never gotten it right. Something to that, something to that effect. I'm like, you know, paraphrasing that, that, that quote. Um, so let's kind of talk a little bit about, about strategy and I, I want to get an understanding of, of what is, do, well, do we have a grand strategy? My assumption is, is no uh, against China. And if we don't, uh, you know, so what do we do? What's, and, I, and I've heard a strategy of denial, and I was wondering if you could kind of talk about that too. Sure. It's a great question. And I, um, I think that the, the short answer is we have not had a, a grand strategy as such, or certainly not a, a successful, effective one now for, for some time, right? You could argue over the course of the Cold War that, you know, there were differences between administrations of either party, between the same party, right, um, over how to do certain things. But there was, in a broad sense, a recognition that um, the United States needed to balance power effectively against the Soviet Union. Uh, to prevent the Soviets from, from taking over Europe in particular, um, and, uh, and that this was vital to America's national interests. And, and, and so U.S. De strict defense strategy in particular 
would orient around that problem set. And again, there are sort of deviations and, and different sort of forms to that over the course of decades. But but there was like a there was a, a at least a persistent theme. To the degree there was a grand strategy after the Cold War, um, it's been uh, yeah. I mean, some have described it as sort of liberal imperialism, right? And again, it's a similar. It's this thing that you know, means slightly different things to you say Republican neoconservatives and Democratic liberal internationalists, but it often brings you to a similar place, right? Um, invading Afghanistan ostensibly for for the initial narrow purpose of of bringing justice and, and defeating Al Qaeda to nation building, right? Invading Iraq and ultimately bringing it into this broader concept of turning, uh, 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 bringing democracy to Iraq and, and the region as a whole, right? Um, use of force in other areas, ostensibly, you know, whether it's part of nation building or otherwise, but 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 for these prosaic goals, again, that are often um, not terribly closely and clearly linked to those core American interests described before, security, prosperity, freedom. Um, but that strategy, to the degree you could describe it as such, uh, has has foundered, right? Like it's just it's not worked, um, and uh, and the bill's coming due in a meaningful sense because now we're realizing, oh, the real threat to our nation's security, prosperity, and freedom, the the, the most important threat in particular, China, hasn't been waiting, hasn't been sleeping, and now increasingly we have to really deal with it. But we've spent so much time in these peripheral interests now um, that we're not ready. Right. And so to your question, well, what do we do now? I think that's where um, I think that's where uh, strategy now fits in. This this is uh, a reference to a book that Elbridge Colby wrote. Um, and uh, it's um, I, I think it's I think it's outstanding. I, you know, I think it's it's outstanding in its clarity and the logic behind it and also the, the, the what it provides in terms of action items for for U.S. policymakers. Right. I mean, basically, the logic laid out in the book um, is similar to what we were talking about before, right? You start with the question, what is it most important, uh, you know, for American interests, right? What does it take to secure and safeguard and advance American security, freedom, prosperity, right? And then you sort of walk through, you know, the homeland defense aspect of it. You come to a similar conclusion as, as we were talking about earlier, you know, that in terms of foreign threats, foreign powers we have to balance against, China is, is clearly at the top of the heap by a wide margin. And then, um, you know, to the degree that making sure that that doesn't fit, uh, that, that China is not able to agglomerate even more power at our expense, then that has to become the priority and everything else sort of flows from there. I will say this, you know, that's that is, um, I think, a, a a rigorous, logical, clear, actionable argument. And it's also different from a lot of other things, you know, conversations you hear. Right. Because, you know. It's a it's an argument that is grounded in American interests, you know, rigorously thought through, leading almost to like a, a, a recipe, right? Like a, a here's how to how to how to um, here's what we should do next. That's very different to just like very different from what you hear from a lot of other folks, right? Which is sort of like you know everything matters. It's all happening. We have to deal with it all at once, right? And it's this, and, and you can even see just sort of in those conversations, hearing those conversations, that that lack of focus. You know, in a in a real logical, meaningful sense, and what matters, what matters most, and then how are we going to array U.S. resources accordingly? Yeah, because it's confusing. Because you say one thing, you say, "Hey, the prioritization is 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 here," and then there's a crisis that that erupts over here, and then you start pushing a whole bunch of resources that way, 
that really should be focused that way. Um, and it's just it's just confusing because the strategic documents say one thing and our actions are are in and our words are, are doing or saying another thing and doing another thing. So it's hundred percent. So it's absolutely, you know, just confusing. So if someone came to you, Alex, and just said, Hey, Alex, China, what is your number one, number one concern? Just give me, give me one. What would that be? China's growing ability uh, to take on us forces in the Pacific. That, that is, you know, um, I don't think we should ever accept a world in which uh, we can't reliably deter or defeat the Chinese. I don't want to live in a world in which the PLA beats us forces in a fight over Taiwan or anything else. That's what keeps me up. That that's what I'm laser focused on. And I'll just say again, like five years ago, you know, we were cogs at the Chinese. They were they're investing, they're moving, but this was not nearly as severe or urgent an issue as it is now. Um, and but the, the bill has come due. We got to deal with this. This or, or else again, you know, it is entirely plausible in this decade that we could find ourselves in a, in a hot war with China and lose. That's a terrible outcome. That's a terrible, terrible outcome for the United States. We shouldn't accept it. We shouldn't tolerate that. That's, that's what I'm most worried about. Talk a little bit about allies and, and partners over in, in the Pacific. I want, you know, I want to get your, your assessment on, on, on them, you know, holistically just to, you know, bit them all together. Um, are they doing enough? Are they not doing enough? You know, could they be doing more, you know, all of the commentary and the, and the criticism about our European allies, um, you know, not meeting the 2%, you know, you know, goal, right, of, of being a NATO member. I mean, there's even criticism in the Middle East, you know, of, you know, why aren't our partners doing more? Why isn't Saudi Arabia doing more? Yada, yada, yada. So I just want to know what your thoughts are on our allies and partners specifically in the, in the Pacific. Are they doing enough? Not doing enough? Can they do more? Um, we are making progress, but I am not at all convinced that it's fast enough or that's as fast as it could be. You know, one, one um, thought exercise, one thought experiment I think is often useful is you ask yourself, what would a particular country do, um, you know, if they were truly convinced that war was imminent or in fact they were at war? Um, and then how does that compare with, with what they're doing now, right? And, you know, you know, think about Taiwan, for instance, right? Taiwan, credit words do, has increased defense spending very slowly, still not investing in all the right things, although, you know, there is blame to be shared, right? The U.S. has not prioritized getting a lot of these things to Taiwan. So, again, there, there's there's multiple sides to some of these problems, but, you know, nobody can look at what Taiwan's doing today and say to themselves, oh, yes, this is this is a government that, that knows that, you know, Taiwan's future is, like, faces an existential threat now, right, and is taking it seriously. I mean, there, there's that's just... That is not a statement anyone could realistically make, right? So, um, again, we can acknowledge and recognize progress, whether it's by, in Taiwan, in Japan, you know, Australia, elsewhere. And again, some are doing tremendous. The Aussies are, are, are really doing outstanding work on a number of things, the Japanese as well. We can do all that. We can recognize that while also making the point that we need more faster, right? And not just for our sakes, but for theirs. Um, you know, I, just one last thought on this, like. Again, I said this before, but it, it, just from a military operational perspective, Taiwan's investments in its own defense have a disproportionate impact on our collective ability to deter defeated Chinese invasion. The nominee to be next commander of U.S. and the Pacific Command testified to this um, during his confirmation here just a couple weeks back. Right? This is this is not a this is not just these are this is not politics. Right? Like this is from a from a from an analytic perspective, 
to the degree Taiwan is able to get serious and do the things it needs to do in order to strengthen its defenses, like a disproportionate impact on the likelihood of Taiwan uh, surviving this decade, not the, you know, surviving a war, but ideally avoiding it altogether. So, um, so this is, this is really, really important. You know, circle back to supply chains and, you know, COVID we learned, you know, I mean, you mentioned it before, you know, the, the, the PPB, right. Um, you know, shortages there because we're dependent on, on China just for the, you know, basic, you know, medical materials. Right. And that's just, that's just one area out of, out of many. Um, some of the companies, you know, out there are, they, they understand, you know, you know, they're, they're hearing the alarm bells, right. And they're, they're getting out of China. Um, you know, we got friend shoring, we got reshoring, we got near shoring, whatever, you know, whatever we want to call the different, different efforts. Should we be continuing to continuing to do that? Should it be completely like, a, I mean, do you see like a more of a regional type globalization where we bring in supply chains back to the the Western hemisphere, or is it okay to, you know, keep it in like Vietnam or the Philippines or Bangladesh, as long as we just keep it out of China? Just wondering your, your thoughts on that. This is also a really important topic. It's a really hard one too, right? Um, you know, my view is that at a minimum, you know, we cannot be reliant on Chinese markets for things that are vital to our nation's economic or national security. That's just common sense. You don't want to rely on your chief foreign adversary for the things that your people need to survive and live prosperously. Like that's just, you would think this is something, this is something that's kind of self-evident, but it is also something, in fact, we are currently relying on the Chinese for a lot of these things, again, as a, as a result of bad policies now for many, many years. So um, at a minimum, we have to cut that reliance. Now the question is, well, how do you do that? Um, well, the easy way is to say, well, we got to, we got to pull some of these, we got to pull all that stuff out of China, right? Instead of relying on a Chinese supplier for X thing that's so important for us, let's rely on a supplier from, you know, you name it, Vietnam, from um, the Philippines, from elsewhere, right? Mexico. The challenge in a lot of these cases is, is you still find yourself, you still, if you work back through those suppliers, they still go back to China, right? You know, there have been some good reports recently about how, um, Chinese uh, firms, you know, recognizing some of the increased skepticism of U.S. reliance on them for certain things, have have been going through some of these other nations more, right? Almost using front companies is, is the wrong term from a technical perspective, but it gives you a sense, right? So you've got a you've got a, a a Vietnamese vendor or some other vendor in Southeast Asia, um, who is ostensibly now a safe source for some of these things, but if you look at their supply chains, they still go back to China, and so you still have this problem. Because, you know, if and when the Chinese government wants to turn the screws on Americans, well, they may no longer sort of turn off the spigot to Americans directly. They'll turn it off indirectly through these other countries. So, again, this is really tough. But I think that the gist is um, coming to uh, basically finding ways um, to truly cut that reliance, including by making sure that if we are, you know, reshoring it to countries in that region, we're reshoring it, uh, bringing it closer into our hemisphere, even here to our shores. Here to our shores is the easiest way, um, but certainly for any of those other options to make sure that uh, we have a good sense of where those goods are truly coming from, where their um, the inputs for them are truly coming from, to make sure that we have, in fact, uh, mitigated those, those really dangerous dependencies. And I think a lot of this is also about finding alternative sources, right? Um, you know, to the degree that any supplier in the world is relying on, you know, uh, certain Chinese input, inputs, for example, if you think about uh, critical minerals, 
to produce a particular thing, then it really doesn't matter where you're getting it from if that, so long as that's really the only source for those those critical inputs. Um, so it's a tough, it's a thorny issue, but again, this is this is a, this is another great example of something that makes no sense, but is the product of years of terrible policy, and now we really have to overhaul. Yeah, wow, this is a, this has been a great conversation on on China, Alex. So, you know, I, I really really appreciate it. Um, you know, I'll transition to my 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 fun questions. You know, and you know, start with a conclusion. You know, and these are the questions that I ask. Uh, you know, every guest, regardless of of what the topic area. And so, what is your all time favorite book? Oh, that's a good question. I um, it's actually a series, The Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan. Uh, okay. I I just, I think it's a masterpiece. I was such a nerd growing <laughs> up. Every time a new book came out, I reread the entire series up to that new book. It's um, it's just brilliant. Awesome. All right, and then, you know, next question is, you know, what emerging or future capability uh, technology worries you the most? What keeps you up at night? I think autonomy and artificial intelligence more broadly is one of those technologies that if and when it achieves the kinds of uh, improvements that a lot of folks talk and warn about, will change the world as we know it. The if is a big part of that, but um, but we shouldn't be sleeping on it. It's something to take seriously. Awesome. All right. And, you know, final question, uh, you know, just, just some recommendations, maybe some lessons learned as, you know, your time being a, a staff member. I know you spent some time up on the Hill. Uh, you know, you worked, worked for, you know, elected official. Um, you know, is there anything you'd be willing to share, you know, that would, you know, help, help us out as, you know, staff, staff officers? Sure. I, maybe two thoughts come to mind. First one I would say, and this is, um, this is one of the single best piece of advice I ever, I, I got very, very early in my career was, um, simple, you know, to be effective staff, your job is to make your boss's life easier. If you, if you look at that, if you look at your job through that lens, everything becomes a lot, a lot simpler, right? Cause at any given moment, you're going to ask yourself, okay, what do I need to do next to make my boss's life easier? And if you're doing that, you're probably a pretty outstanding staff officer, whether you're on a staff officer or on the Hill or what have you. The other thing I would say, um, is, uh, is get is is you know get the substance right right like you know i think execution is vital in any of these roles um but but to the degree you know certainly thinking about you know you know where i've traveled on the hill or adjacent spaces you know it's um it 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 says a lot when folks look at you know not only are they a super effective implementer you can rely on them to get things done but they also know what they're talking about they've got depth I think if you can do both those things, bring that together, you're in a spot to make a real difference. Awesome. Hey, you know, I really, really appreciate it. This has been a fantastic conversation, Alex. Um, you know, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, we've talked, you know, primarily China, but we've, you know, you know, branched off to different areas, you know, talking to defense industrial base. We talked, uh, you know, we talked budget, we talked, you know, force posture, global force management, um, and we talked strategy. So that being said, I will defer to you, sir, for any final comments. Hey, ju just to thank you again, I, um, these are the conversations you really need to be having, right? I think conversations that grapple with the reality of scarcity, that talk about America's interests and our priorities and how best to get after them. I, um, I I'm really grateful for the opportunity to have had that conversation today with you. 
and um, and uh, I really appreciate it. All right, Alex. Hey, thanks again. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes involving national security, the budget, strategy, the defense industrial base, and China.